Well, if you will, turn with me in your Bibles to Job chapter 8. The men know from yesterday that I read through Job this week, and so it's just fresh on my mind, and I had, had taken a few notes here and there, and so all this sort of pops out at me. And so I'm going to read from Job. I don't plan on expositing anything from this reading. I just want to read it, and then I'll walk through a review, and then I'll sort of circle back around to it and explain why this, I, I believe, is relevant. Job chapter 8, beginning in verse 8. For inquire, please, of bygone ages, and consider what the fathers have searched out. For we are but of yesterday, and know nothing. For our days on earth are a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you and utter words out of their understanding? This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would guide us tonight as we study our confession, a summary of the doctrines taught, uh, some of the most important doctrines taught in the Scriptures. I pray that you would give us uh, attentive minds, and I pray that you would be um, exalted in our studies. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So our goal uh, tonight is to, do an, is, is to walk through an outline, but I, what I want to do is review three weeks of our study in just a few seconds most of you know the way I think is, is very linear. And so I have to start from a beginning and walk all the way through to get to a particular point. And so we began several weeks ago by unpacking what I call a biblical theology uh, or a biblical defense of historical theology. And we saw from the Scripture first that Christ has promised to be with His church. We read in Matthew 18, or 28, 18 through 20, the Great Commission... Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Now we know that could not have just been for the apostles and the disciples standing there because they didn't live until the end of the age. And so Christ is promising to be with His church all the way through the end of the age until He returns. In John 14, He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Christ Himself promises to be with His people Matthew chapter 18, he said, Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And we learn that through the power, through the presence of the Holy Spirit, in the midst of his gathered people, Christ is with his church. When we get together just like this, Christ is here. It's not just people, but, but he is here. We also seen that Christ speaks in and through his church. We read in Hebrews 1, one and two, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. And then Romans 10, we read, How are they to believe in Him whom, correct translation, in Him whom they have never heard? We learn when we put these things together and read throughout the New Testament Scriptures that Christ speaks in His churches through the reading of Scripture, the preaching of Scripture. And He does that, again, throughout the ages. From the time of His ascension until the time of His return, He will be with His gathered people, and He will speak to His gathered people. Now, how does He do that? Well, we saw that Christ speaks through the offices of gifted men. Again, how are they to believe in Him 
whom they have never heard, and how are they to hear? That is, how are they to hear him without someone preaching? Paul is implying that when someone preaches, Christ speaks, and the church hears from their Lord. In Ephesians 2, he, speaking of Christ, came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Christ spoke to his church. He preaches. In Ephesians 4, the, the capstone passage there, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherd teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And so what we learned that first week was if we compile a list of references from throughout the New Testament, we can conclude that the Lord Jesus Christ has promised His own personal presence in and with every one of His gathered local churches until He returns bodily. And we could throw into that passage, Revelation, or that section, Revelation chapter 1, He walks in the midst of the lampstands. He is in and with His churches and he exercises his rule and authority through the offices of preaching and teaching the Word of God. So we start there. Christ is with his churches throughout the ages. Now historically, one of the ways that the offices given to the church have taught the Word, preached the Word, and, and articulated the doctrines of the Word has been through the, uh, the drafting of creeds and confessions. And so we saw, starting all the way back in, at the very beginning in Deuteronomy, that God's people have always sought to establish the line of biblical truth. They were not creating biblical truth or making up any biblical truth. They just stated what was and they restated it and restated it. And so the first creed, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In other words, there is one God. That wasn't a new truth. It was an old truth, an eternal truth. We come to the New Testament and Paul says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Not only is there only one God, but Jesus is that one God. And so he, he sort of stacks on top of that ancient eternal truth. Not a new truth, but an eternal truth. Again, in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, he sort of compiles them together and he says, yet for us there is one God the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. That was within Scripture. One God, His name is Jesus. We come outside of the Scriptures in the early church, and the early church laid foundations of eternal biblical truth. And we looked at the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Statement, and the Athanasian Creed. Every one of them... Merely clarifying that line. Remember the picture of the, the laser beam uh, tripwire for an alarm system in the movies? You know, they can't see it in the dark until they spray the line across, the, the can across it, and it comes to light. They can see the line. That's what's happening here. They're not inventing truth. They're not adding truth. For you ladies, they're not adding hair. They're just teasing out their hair. When they get done, it's bigger, but it's not more hair. It's just more truth, more articulation. That's what's happened. Throughout church history, our beginning with the authors of Scripture and the apostles and their disciples throughout church history, Christians have sought to establish the biblical line of truth. We saw the purpose of having a confession of faith preserves our unity as a local church. It proclaims the truth 
that we believe. It provides clarity so that everyone around us can know exactly what we believe at all times. There's no hidden truth or hidden agenda. It promotes the study of doctrine. When we study, when we have a confession that looks like this, we realize, we think, we believe doctrine is important. It's worth our time and study. And it also prevents error. When, when errors and things begin to seep into the church or, be, or doctrines begin to be questioned, we can go back to the ancient standards and say this is what the Christian church has always taught. Not the Roman church, the Christian church. Last week then we saw that through a series of events rooted in the English Reformation and the English Puritanism of the 17th century, our particular Baptist forefathers did exactly what Christians had always done. They drafted and adopted a confession of faith to proclaim to the world what they believed concerning the most important doctrines in Scripture. Again, they only sought to be in line with historic orthodoxy. They just wanted to say, we believe the truth. And that confession is known as the 1689 London Baptist Confession, or the Second London Confession. So tonight we're going to look at an outline, and we're going to be um, using this outline um, for the next several weeks. Take one of these, uh, one per household, I think. So take one of those. Um, I've, I've come up with this outline that we're going to be studying, and you can keep these. We're going to look through it tonight, and that'll be hopefully the, the guidepost or the, the guardrail for the next, again, several weeks, at least, at least a year and a half we'll, we'll be in this study. But the reason that I want to go through an outline like this is to help you see that our forefathers were not sloppy when it came to articulating doctrine. Now whether you want to say the, the Westminster divines or whether you want to say our particular Baptist forefathers who, um, who took the other confessions and, and, and reworded them to fit Baptist theology, you're going to see that they weren't just saying, well, well, what do you think about the Bible? Let's write that down. What do you think about uh, God? Write that down. Uh, what do you think about Jesus? Good, write that down. No, they were, they were very serious and very intentional about the way that they articulated their doctrine and they followed a very precise methodology. And so the goal of this study beginning tonight is to follow the advice of Bildad the Shuhite who said, Inquire, please, of bygone ages and consider what the fathers have searched out for we are but of yesterday and know nothing. We need to understand that. We've got to confess that. We're young. We're a young church. We're young people. We're, we're young in the history of humanity. We know nothing. Our days on earth are a shadow. He says, will they not teach you, speaking of the fathers, will they not teach you and tell you and utter words out of their understanding? The answer is yes. If we will go back to the ancient paths, the ancient landmarks, the ancient doctrines of the church, we will see they knew what they were doing. They were smarter than us. And so we should listen to what they have to say. So, if you have a copy of the confession, you can open it up to your table of contents. We'll be at the very beginning. The table of contents. And I have stolen, shamelessly stolen, 
an overarching outline from Dr. James Renahan. I told you last week, if you can find anything from him about Baptist history, um, Baptist theology, he, he's very smart. Um, and so when I was looking for just a general outline, I stole this outline from him, and this is what I have written on the board here. I'm going to leave this up here after a little bit so that as we begin to walk through it, you'll sort of know where we are and you won't have to be flipping over your paper and stuff. I just thought that might help. So he's divided up the, the confession into four different units. Now, most of us have heard of the gospel outline, creation, fall, redemption, restoration or redemption, consummation. Very easy, overarching way to understand redemptive history. God created, man fall, God came to redeem, He will eventually restore all things. You've heard that? Is that am I the only one that's ever read that? We've, we've heard that, okay. Okay. Keep that in mind as you look at this because I think it's very similar in layout. And again, he didn't really force this upon the confession. It's drafted this way. The first section, chapters 1 through 6, cover what he calls first principles. In other words, this is the groundwork for all of our theology. All of our understanding of Christian doctrine is rooted in these first six chapters. First principles. And then we have the second unit, which is the largest unit, chapters 7 through 20, which concerns the covenant. Now... When you read the ancient creeds and confessions, you usually see the largest chunks are focused on the most important thing, and they almost all have to do with the nature, the person, and the work of Christ. Well, here we see in our confession, the largest chunk is devoted to the covenant, which we might say is the skeleton upon which this entire confession is, is built. The covenant. That's why when we say, uh, when we use the term reform, that is often synonymous with covenant theology as opposed to a dispensational theology or a, uh, what's called a new covenant theology. We believe in covenant theology. And so we have a very big section on the covenant. And then we have the third unit, God-centered living, chapters 21 through 30. God-centered living is the practical outflow of sound Christian doctrine. When you get the basics down and you realize what God has done for you in Christ, the next thing that happens is you live out your faith. And so we have that God-centered living. And then we have the world to come in chapters 31 and 32, just two chapters, which is the future hope of the Christian faith. We don't believe we're done here. We don't believe this is all there is. We have a hope for the future. Now, let's talk about the structure. Almost always, it seems that in those four units, the first chapter in that unit lays down the basics or the groundwork for the rest of the unit in seed form. Okay, so you've got a unit, and then you've got the first chapter of that unit, and then the following chapters seem to detail the implications of that very first chapter. So you've got unit chapters beneath the units. And then, 
Within each chapter, it seems like it follows the same pattern. The first section of each chapter lays out the groundwork for that chapter, and then the following sections unpack that first section. So it looks like this. If you were going to make an outline with Roman numerals, a professional outline like this, it would look like this. Unit 1, we would say, first unit is first principles, and then you got chapter 1 on the scriptures. And it's a big chapter on the scriptures. But it, if you notice, it talks a lot and mentions a lot of things that are not... That, if you were just reading the confession and you had no clue about Christian theology, you would read the first section on the scriptures and you would be asking yourself, who is God? What do, we, what do you mean Christ? What do you mean the fathers? What do you mean the rule of faith? It doesn't explain it. It just assumes it and it will unpack it later. And so then the following sections unpack that first chapter, which are dealing with that first unit. And then you've got chapter 2. Does that make sense? So it's, it's, it's broken down very elaborately. Now, it doesn't follow this every time, and, and there are some places that I couldn't, I couldn't make it work. But that's what it would look like if you were studying and making an outline. That's why you have in your hands. That's what I've done here, is broken it down that way. So, put this back up here so you can see the units laid out, and hopefully that doesn't fall. So, again, as an example, the Holy Scriptures, then you would have section 1, section 2 and following would be sort of unpacking section 1. And then section 1 is, um, yeah, is, is unpacked from there. So, do you see already that this is not just something thrown together? This is very articulate. It, it's... Um, some might use the, the terminology of a masterpiece. It is a work of art. It is um, it's very detailed, very precise, very elaborate, very smart. So, let me give you a rule for reading. Some of you, and hopefully we have all, if you're a member, you have read this, but you probably didn't know this as you were reading it. So this will help as you go back through it. As you're reading, remember to take note of things in early chapters that may need to be fleshed out later on because the confession will get back to it. It, it will explain itself. So, here's some examples. Let's, let's use our confession here. Turn to section 1 of chapter 1. You got it? Of the Holy Scriptures, section 1, or if you have my, my confession calls them paragraphs. They may not have a title at all, but the first section, notice what it says. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. On further down, notice it uses the phrase necessary unto salvation. I could read the whole thing, but I don't want to. Saving knowledge, necessary for salvation. Now, as far as the confession is concerned, we've not covered salvation. We don't know what salvation is. We're coming to this blind and we're reading, and all of a sudden there's this, this saving thing. I, who needs to be saved? Who's doing the saving? I, do I need to be saved? It doesn't explain it. The confession, in other words, assumes you know something, and then the confession will come back later and it will explain this foundational principle. 
Um, another one, turn to chapter 26. Of the church. In section 5 of... Oh, I told you wrong. It's not chapter 26. I think it's of worship. Maybe it's the next chapter. Let's try chapter 27. Nope. Nope. Let's go back to chapter 22. That's it. Chapter 22, paragraph 5, or section 5. Chapter 22, section 5. Notice it says, The reading of the Scriptures. Now, we might could say, What do you mean, the Scriptures? What's that mean? How am I supposed to know what Scriptures you're talking about? Oh, yeah. Chapter 1 told me what Scriptures. I could come to this and say, Oh, you mean like the Apocrypha? And stuff. No, no. Chapter 1 already explained... No, the apocryphal books are rejected. So, so you see how it, it, it feeds off of itself. Um, <clears throat> paragraph 7 of the same chapter. Notice it says, As it is the law of nature that in general a proportion of time by God's appointment be set apart for the worship of God. What do you mean law of nature? What's that? What is the law of nature? Well... We can turn back to chapter 4. Section 2. And we read this. After God had made all other creatures, He created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, rendering them fit unto that life to God, which for they were created or for which they were created, being made after the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness, having the law of God written on their hearts. By nature, human beings created in the image of God had this law. We would call that the law of nature. They have the law of God written on their being. The law of God written on man's heart at creation. Then if we put these two things together, written on man's heart at creation, teaches that man there is a specific amount of time or there should be a proportion of time set aside for the worship of God. That's written on our nature. Now, are we to say, well, how much time do you think would be reasonable to worship God? And we would say, I mean, I'd say two hours, tops. Two hours a week, I mean, I've got to work. Another man might say, no, 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 I don't have to work at all. I want to live this... this uh, um, monastic lifestyle, so I want to devote six days of the week and not work at all. And we just go back and forth. Well, how much time is necessary to worship God? Then we would come to the Scriptures and say, what does God require? Well, we learn at creation. He requires one day in seven. But we all have this thing written on our nature that says, you must devote some time to this God. And how much time? Well, that's up for Him to decide. In other words, and this is how Renahan puts it, Read the confession backwards and forwards. Don't, when you get to, to the, a later chapter, don't forget what, what you've read before. It's not separated. It's not all just dis, disjunct. Is that a word? Disjunctured? Dis, disjunct? Um, if it's not, I made it up. 
It's not all distinct and separated doctrines just thrown together. Well, here's what we believe about this, and here's what we believe about this, and here's what we believe about this. It is a system of theology. And I've told some of you guys, take these things and hand them out or study them. It is a systematic theology put together in, in, in a way that when you study it, it teaches you about, again, if we trace that, that outline of the gospel, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, or creation, fall, covenant, and redemption, and then restoration. So... Let's start walking through this. You've got your sheets there. We've got 35 minutes. I want to keep us at an hour. We begin with first principles. The most foundational, basic rules of Christian theology. And we begin with chapter 1 on the Holy Scriptures. Now why... Here's a good question. As Christians and we've been talking about this a lot lately, we are, should be consumed with thoughts and delight and worship in God. Right? God is the most important thing. We don't worship the Bible as a book. We worship the God of the Bible that God has exalted above all things, His name and His word. So they're very similar. And I don't know that He drives a wedge between Himself and what He has spoken. But we don't worship a paper bound in, 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 a, in a, a leather binding. Or if you've got a cheaper Bible, it's probably paperback. Or, um. So why would we begin with a section on the Scriptures and not a section on, say, God? Or... I mean, if we're, if we're really good conservatives, why not just begin with a section on the blood of Jesus? Just start there. Why not? Well, you'll have to come next week to find out that answer, why we begin with the Scriptures. But we do begin with the Holy Scriptures. And the first section unpacks a very large uh, section there on the nature of Scriptures. Now, from this point... All of these titles are mine, and so if you can come up with better titles, tell me. Um, but th this is just the way that I, I'd sort of uh, put headings on this so that we could have it in our minds and get a general idea of what we're ha what's happening. So we have the nature of the Scriptures. Then we see the books of the Scriptures, which some, some people might think that's weird. D don't we all know what is, a, what is a Bible or what a Bible is, is or is not? The answer is no. We don't. If you're a Roman Catholic, you've got more books than, than the Protestant has. Um, and so, um, we need to know which books are in our Bibles. And then again, there's section 3, the books rejected. The books called the Apocrypha that are in the Roman Catholic Bible, that were in the earliest copies of the King James Bible, they're not Bible to us. They might help us, they might teach us, but they're not Bible. They're not authoritative. And then we come to section 4, the authority of the Scriptures. What can the Scriptures tell us and, and how do they dictate us? Um, external and internal attestation of the Scriptures. The scope of the Scriptures. The perspicuity of the Scriptures. That is, we believe that the Bible is clear. That anyone who comes to the Bible can learn with, with reasonable understanding what it means or what it takes to be saved. They can learn that from the Scriptures. The translation of the Scriptures. We do believe they should be translated in all languages. Uh, the interpretation of the Scriptures. Um, I believe that's the section on the, the different 
modes of interpretation. I'm going to turn backwards in mind so I can catch up with you all. Yeah, the interpretation of the Scriptures. There we have the, the rules set down for what are called the Analogia Scriptura and the Analogia Fide. In other words, we believe that the Bible interprets itself. We can read the Bible and it will tell us not only what it means, but how to read it. Now, how do we do that? Well, we learn from the Apostle Paul how he read the Psalms. We learn from Christ how he read the Psalms. And so they tell us how to read the Bible. So there's a section on that. And then there's a section on the finality of, of the Scriptures. And it's interesting when you read paragraph 10 on the finality of the Scriptures and paragraph 1, the nature of the Scriptures is saying that Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. It's very odd when people come to you and they say, why do y'all need a confession? Don't y'all have a Bible? Or, the, or you guys raise the confession above the Bible. No, actually our confession says that the Bible is the only certain and infallible rule and that it is the bottom line. It settles all matters. And our confession states that. We don't believe it because the confession says it. We believe it because the Bible says it. And the confession tells us and clarifies, articulates how the Bible says it. So there's one on the Holy Scriptures. Chapter 2 of God and the Holy Trinity which we would say, this is the main theme of the Scriptures. The Scriptures are to tell us about God and the Holy Trinity. And so section 1 unpacks the nature and attributes of God. Section 2, then, God and His creation. In other words, here we are. We're the ones studying this, so we need to know something about what God has created and how He relates to His creation. Section 3, God and His Persons, unpacks uh, some things about the Trinity. And when we study creation, we learn, in essence, that God has acted outwardly. He's done something. He's, he's moved and something has happened outside of Himself. Creation has happened. And so we might ask at that point, well, what is the, what is the source of that action? By what means has God created. Well, that brings us to chapter 3 of God's decree. Section 1, the nature of God's decree. One of the most fundamental questions we would have to ask ourselves in a study of theology is, why is there anything? Why anything? Why is anybody saved? Why, is any, why does the earth exist? Why does the universe exist? The answer is, because God decreed it. Why does anything happen? Because God said it would. It's not the other way around. It happens because God decreed it. And so then we unpack that decree. We see it is a necessary decree. We see it is a salvific decree. It concerns our salvation. It is an immutable decree. It cannot change. It is a Christocentric decree. It is an effectual decree. That is, it does exactly what He intends for it to do. And then in, in section 7 of that, I've titled that one a, a precious decree. A precious decree. The doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care that men attending the will of God revealed in His Word and yielding obedience thereunto may from the certainty of their effectual vocation be assured of their eternal election. And so shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, admiration of God, humility, diligence, so on and so forth.
Doctrines like that, the decree of God, predestination, election, these things are not truths that we use to beat people with. Don't you read your Bible? What are you, an idiot? Can you read the... No. They are to be handled with care because we have to understand these things are so absolutely contrary to the nature of man and what he wants to be true that we need to be gentle. Now, that doesn't mean we hide them. Again, like we've said before, get them to join our church and then say, ha-ha, you're a Calvinist. No, that's not what we do. We, we want them to know the truth, but we must, be, we must be gentle in proclaiming these truths, especially dealing with that dec eternal decree. So that's why I call it a precious decree. So God has decreed, and one of the questions, I believe, in, in one of the Westminster Catechisms is how does God execute His decree? So He's spoken it, He said it, but how does He actually execute it? Well, the answer is uh, through acts of creation and providence. In creation, we have a six-day creation. Then it's unpacked, the creation of man, and then man and his pre-fall condition. What that teaches us is that creation, the creation story, is not just an account for us to argue about how long it took or, or how he did it or what he made on which day. Those things are important. But we need to understand that all of that, again, is funneled into the, the, the lens of salvation. We're learning about salvation. Creation is here because God decreed to save a people. It's not the other way around. And so it begins with creation, creation of man, and pre-fall man. And that begins to develop an idea in our mind. There is a man created a certain way. And then it turns to acts of divine providence. God not only creates, but He also governs His creation. Ephesians 1.11 tells us He works all things according to the counsel of His will. Not lets all things happen, not allows all things, He works them. That's what we call providence. And so we have a, the first section, section 1, the explanation of providence. And then we have the method of providence, the means of providence, the magnitude of providence, the ministry of providence. Um, I'm fairly proud of that alliteration, but I'm, I am open to changes. But that's, again, that wasn't intentional. And then, and then you'll see it unpacks even more in depth when it comes to the ministry of providence, the ministry of providence for the wicked, and the ministry of providence for the church. What is God working in re with regard to the, um, those who we would say are non-elect, the reprobate? And what is He doing in, uh, in the case of His church? And then we sort of come back to what we learned of in chapter 4, section 3. The fall of man into sin and the punishment thereof. Section 1, the entrance of sin. Section 2, the effect of original sin. And then beneath that, the effect of original sin on man's nature. So it keeps getting deeper and deeper. And then it comes back. Section 4, the effects of a sinful nature. And section 5, the remnants of sinful flesh. And so we have learned in this section that God has spoken. God has created, God has decreed, God is working all things. A part of this creation is a creature made in His image called man. This man has fallen in sin. He has this original sin. Not only did Adam sin, but all of his um, posterity are now fallen and plunged into sin because of his sin. And not only 
are we plunged into sin, but no matter what happens, we always have the remnants of that sinful uh, flesh in us. We have this sinful, by the end of chapter 6, we're stuck with these sinful, rebellious creatures in the light of this holy, magnificent, creating God. Now what? What are we going to do here? Well, that's, that brings us to the second unit, the covenant. The covenant. And you'll notice the language here. Chapter 7, section 1, I've titled God the Initiator. This covenant, again, this is the, the skeleton or the infrastructure upon which the whole covenant or the confession is written. Notice what it says. The distance between God, and we've already learned about God, and the creature, we've already learned about the creature, is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to Him as their Creator, yet they could never have attained the reward of life but by some voluntary condescension on God's part with, with, with which He hath been pleased to express by way of of covenant. In other words, we are so sinful and wicked and, and worthless compared to this God, we had no ground to stand on, nothing to have a relationship with Him. The only way we could have a relationship with this God is if He comes down, condescends to our level, and makes a covenant with us on His terms. And that's what the confession lays out. God the initiator. Man, the object, what man? Well, that man of chapter 4 and chapter 6, that fallen man. And then section 3, redemption is the purpose of this covenant. Now here's where the confession begins to get really good. And, and as I was, I was just typing out this outline and I was, I was ready. I was enjoying this. Because we come to this question, if we're paying attention, how could that God of chapter 2, was it chapter 2? How could the God of chapter 2 enter into a covenant with that man of chapter 6? How could He do that? Well, that brings us to chapter 8 of Christ the Mediator. And section 1 establishes for us Christ the mediator of this covenant. We might say the covenant servant. And then paragraph 2 or section 2 we'll learn of the person of Christ the mediator. Section 3, the fitness of Christ the mediator, not His exercise routine, but how He was perfectly and absolutely fitted for the work of mediator between God and man. Section 4, we will learn of the work of Christ the mediator. What did He do? Let me read that one. This office, of the, this office the Lord Jesus Christ did most willingly undertake. What did we learn this morning? Our, the biblical doctrine of the atonement depends upon the obedience of the Son of God. He did most willingly undertake which that he might discharge, he was made under the law and did perfectly fulfill it and underwent the punishment due to us which we should have borne and suffered, being made, a, being, being made sin and a curse for us, enduring most grievous sorrows in his soul 
and most painful sufferings in his body, was crucified and died and remained in the state of the dead, yet saw no corruption. On the third day he arose from the dead with that same body in which he suffered, with which he also ascended into heaven, and there sits at the right hand of his Father making intercession, and shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. The work of Christ the mediator. What did he do? He became incarnate as a man, was born of a virgin under the law, lived according to the law, then died according to the, the, the curse of the law, having become a curse, was buried, was raised on the third day, and ascends into heaven. That's what he did. So that was the work of Christ the mediator. Section 5, the success of Christ the mediator. Did it work? All that he did, absolutely. So we'll, we'll talk about the success, then we'll see the sufficiency of Christ the mediator. In that section, chapter 8, section 6, one of the scriptural references there is 1 Corinthians 4.10. Is that what yours says? Yours says 10.4? Okay, good. It's supposed to say 10.4. But there are many copies, including my own, that have 4.10. So I was going to say, if you've got 4.10, mark it out and write 10.4. And that is a very old error, by the way. I've got like one of the original facsimile copies, and it's, it's in that. That's an old error. So if, if those are corrected, that's good. So we'll learn of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ the mediator, the two-nature language of Christ the mediator. We have to be prepared and understand that the Bible does say that God attained the church with His own blood. Now we would say, wait a second, God can't die. God doesn't have blood. Well, Christ... God and man did have blood, did have a body, and the, and the authors of Scripture are not ashamed to use that language. That doesn't bother them to say those things. And so we need to pay attention to that. The two-nature language of Christ, the mediator, the application of Christ the mediator, the exclusivity of Christ the mediator, and in paragraph or section 10, man's need for Christ the mediator. So we begin that big section on the covenant, unpacking the covenant, and here we see this, this outline again laid out. God is the initiator, man is the object, redemption is the purpose. Okay, how can that God redeem those people? Well, we begin with Christ the mediator. There must be a mediator. What did we learn this morning? The biblical doctrine of the atonement requires a substitute. And so that's how the confession lays it out. Okay, then we have a section on free will that's sort of explaining the will of man throughout the covenantal stages. This argument, this discussion on the free will or the, the unfree or bound will of man is a historical argument. And so there are, uh, there's section one, talks about a created will. God created man with a certain way. But, and then we come to section two, that will was mutable. It, was not, it wasn't such a will that could never change. Section 3, we have a fallen will because we sinned. Section 4, we have a redeemed will. And section 5 talks about the glorified will in heaven. So, does a person, does a human being, have a free will? Well, then it depends on what you mean by free will. Am I free to go run and jump over that house if I want to? Nope. Not free to do that. What if I want to really, really, really bad? 
Nope, not free to do that. Why? Because it's contrary to my nature. My nature as a human being will not allow me to do that. So do, am I free? Sure I'm free within the confines of my nature. Now if my nature is fallen, I'm bound by sin. If my nature is redeemed, I'm bound to righteousness. So that's sort of the argument but of, of this idea of the free will of man. It depends on what you mean by free will of man. So there's a section on that that sort of unpacks it throughout redemptive history. Then we come to chapter, chapters 10, 11, 12, and 13. Now we could sort of subdivide this unit. Here is God's work in the covenant. Chapters 10 through 13 are God's work in the covenant. Chapters 14 through 18 are man's work in the covenant or the covenant from man's perspective. Now if we were writing a dissertation on the order of salvation, the ordo salutis, we would put saving faith, chapter 14, before chapter 11 of justification because we, are, we know we are justified by faith. So faith has to come first. God gives faith. We believe we're declared righteous on behalf of that faith that God has given. But that's not what the, the confession is trying to do. It's broken down the covenant first from God's perspective. What does God do? And then we'll come back to man's perspective. What does man do? So we have chapter 10 on effectual calling. The transition of effectual calling from where to where. The recipients of the call, special cases that will deal with uh, infants and uh, those who are mentally handicapped. And then section 4 deals with those who are not effectually called. Chapter 11 of justification. This again, this is going to be good. The grounds of our justification, the instrument of justification, the warrant of justification, the application of justification. Not too proud of that one. The position of justification and the history of justification. So we're just going to we'll talk about the doctrine of justification, which we've covered before, but, but there we'll get into the nitty-gritty, even more detail than we've been before. Then, chapter 12, and some of the men were talking about this yesterday, only one paragraph on adoption, um, which is not uncommon, but when you begin to un unpack the doctrine of, of adoption, it, I think it deserves more. It is a big paragraph and there's a lot in this paragraph and we will spend as much time as necessary on this paragraph but there's a section on adoption. God calls us, God justifies us, God adopts us into His family and then we come to sanctification, um, the analysis of sanctification, the process of sanctification and the progress of sanctification. God does sanctify us. That's something He does. But it's interesting how that immediately rolls over into man's work. But why? Because we do believe in a synergistic sanctification. We do believe once you are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, you better start doing something for God. And if you, you just think you could just sit down in a chair and say, well, I'm justified now, I don't have to do anything. That, that's, not, that's not Christian doctrine. And so it begins to unpack man's work, um, man's perspective on the covenant, or we might say covenant graces given to man and then worked back toward God. And so we have a chapter on saving faith. By grace you have been saved to faith, and not of your, this is not of yourselves, is the gift of God, is a covenant grace. But we must believe. 
You can share the gospel with people and tell them, you must believe, you must repent. We can say that. We don't have to say, well, do you feel like God has elected you unto salvation? You don't have to do that. You can tell people to believe. So we'll talk about saving faith. We'll talk about repentance. In Acts chapter 11, verse 18, we read that God granted repentance to the Gentiles. So that is a gift of God, a covenant grace. Does that mean I don't have to actually turn from my sin? No, I do. I must repent. And so that, that chapter is very strange um, because it's not broken down as simply as the other ones. There's first a section on crisis repentance and then one on Christian repentance. Um, I won't get into, into the distinctions right now, but you can study those and see. The, the footnotes there, I think, sort of give some details about those. So there's repentance, then there's good works. Philippians 2 says what? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for His good pleasure. So again, yes, we are to work, but we are to work what God has worked in us. We work it out. The basis of good works, the purpose of good works, the source of good works, the limit of good works, the insufficiency of good works... God's approval of good works and the impossibility of good works. If you're unconverted, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ in you, it doesn't matter what you do. It's no good. It's, it's, it's worthless. And then we have a chapter on the perseverance of the saints. Notice, not preservation, but perseverance. We must persevere. Those who persevere to the end will be saved. Perseverance explained, embedded, and exemplified. And then we have a chapter on the assurance of the grace of salvation. The hope of assurance, the foundation of assurance, the attainment of assurance, and the loss and renewal of assurance. There, there are times in the Christian life where we feel more assured than other times. And times when we don't feel assured at all. And so that we can lose assurance from time to time. God will do that to test us, to get us to run back to Him, and then He will renew that assurance in our hearts. And so there's a section on that. Then we come to chapters 19 and 20. We might ask at this point, how is it that we receive the covenant? How does it come to us? And the answer is this historical description, the law and the, law and the gospel. And we'll have a, a big section or a big chapter there on the law, the law of creation, law at Sinai 1, 1 2, and 3 the law for mankind, the law for today, and the law and the gospel. And then immediately after that, the law and the gospel, there's a chapter on the gospel. Now this chapter is not a chapter explaining what is the gospel. This chapter is a, is a chapter dealing with how does the gospel go forth. Because the question during this time period was, wait a second, you Baptists, <laughs> you Baptists, y'all don't, don't have a presbytery or a, what, you just have churches? That's it? Like, how are you going to get, how's the gospel going to, who's going to pick your men? Who's going to train your men? Who's going to establish and orchestrate all of this stuff? A Baptist would say the church. Christ church does that. We train and we send out gospel preachers. And so we talked about the promise of the gospel, the revelation of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, and the power of the gospel. And there's that section on the covenant. Then we come to unit three. God-centered living. Yeah, we're doing good. God-centered living. We might ask at this point, what happens 
to a person when the gospel comes in power and saves them? Well, the answer is God-centered living. And here, almost all of this is rooted in Christian liberty and liberty of conscience, which is chapter 21. This is the root of God-centered living, the liberty of conscience. We have been set free from the bondage to sin. We are now set free like, as sons of God to, to serve Him with liberty. And remember the, the, the context of the drafting of our confession, the, the English Reformation and English Puritanism, and they, they were not at liberty, and they wanted to be at liberty. And so Baptists especially have historically fought for liberty to worship and to live as the Bible teaches. And we read this in the, the original, the 1644 confession last week, where they said, we're doing what we believe the Bible tells us in our conscience. And if someone wants to come and help us understand, we don't know it all. But if somebody wants to come and help us to understand, we'll listen and we will praise God for you, for helping us come to a knowledge of the truth, but... If you come to us and you just want to call us heretics because we're do doing what the Bible says to do, then we'll die a thousand deaths before we abandon what the Word of God and our conscience tells us to do. And so, Christian liberty was very important. And it, and it still is. Then there's chapter 22 of religious worship in the Sabbath day. We are at liberty to worship our God the way He has commanded us to worship. And we are at liberty to reject all man-made worship, all will worship. And so section one of that chapter, I've entitled The Regulation of Worship. That's where we find our, what we call the regulative principle of worship. The light of nature, is that it? Yeah, the light of nature, nope, chapter 22. Yeah, the light of nature shows that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all is just Good and doth good to all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, served, with all the heart and all the soul, with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by Himself, and so limited by His own revealed will, that He may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan, under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed by the Holy Scriptures. We would say this is central to a Reformed church, the regulative principle of worship. When we come here, we do not do anything that God has not explicitly commanded or implied in the Scriptures. We do exactly what He's told us, and we stop knowing He is pleased with obedience. And we do it the way He has told us. Again, talks about visible representation. Of course, the second commandment is brought in there. Um, and there are differences of opinion about pictures of uh, Christ. Um, I've personally never seen one, but people have different opinions on those. So we have a section there on religious, the regulation of worship. And then beneath that, the object of worship, prayer as worship, and then beneath prayer as worship, right prayer. Can we pray to saints? And we, can we pray to Mary and, and stuff? No, we cannot. Then we come back to the, the concept of corporate worship, the location of worship, the day of worship, and then beneath the day of worship, there is a section there on keeping the day 
of worship. Again, to answer the question, we all have this law written on our, our hearts, our nature that tells us this God requires some amount of time devoted to Him. How much? How could we possibly know how much unless He said one in seven? He did say that. And so we're not left to our imaginations. And so we have the day of worship, and then beneath that, there's keeping the day of worship. Am I allowed to pick up sticks? Is God going to strike me dead? Well, it's, it's typically a lot more simple than people make it out to be. But how do I keep the day holy unto the Lord? There it's explained. And there again, there's room for difference of opinion and interpretation within this confession. But we're not going to argue that there's, no, there's nine commandments. Nobody's running around saying, well, the school system really went downhill when they took the nine commandments off the wall. Nobody's saying that. Everybody agrees there are ten commandments. And so we'll talk about that. And then we have a chapter on lawful oaths and vows. Um, we are to honor God and men with our word. Um, and so we'll learn about the definition of an oath and, and uh, proper grounds of an oath, severity of an oath, clarity of an oath, and then the Christian definition or the definition of a Christian vow. Um, that's going to be interesting. Most of us don't have a, 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 and I don't personally have a very good concept of oaths and vows. But um, the idea of, of swearing, you know, remember Christ mentions this in the Sermon on the Mount, swearing by the temple or swearing by the altar because they thought they could get out of keeping their oath. But we learned that we are to keep our word. Uh, then we have a chapter on the civil magistrate, or we might say this is civil liberty. Remember... In context, the Anabaptists were still around. Some of them believed and still believe, their descendants still believe they should have no participation whatsoever in anything to do with politics. While others were starting destruction and causing destruction in, in the civil realm. And so we, we have a, a chapter on the civil magistrate. It's original institution. It is instituted by God. God created the government. It's His he made it. It's not a bad thing inherently. We have a section on Christian participation. Yes, you may participate in political things, voting. You, you may be a lawyer. You can go. Your kids can grow up and be a senator if they want to. It's going to be tough. And then there's also a, a section on Christian obligation. Do we all have to be senators? No. Do we all have to pray for our senators? Absolutely. We're commanded by God to pray for those who are in authority over us. So we have a chapter on the civil magistrate, a chapter on marriage. We are at liberty to marry. But we must do it in the Lord. And so there's a chapter on candidates for marriage. Again, we have extra documentation to clarify this even more. But even this ancient confession says very clearly, a man and a woman. And that's it. That's the only marriage we acknowledge, is a marriage between a man and a woman. If it's anything else, it's not marriage. We have section two, the reasons for marriage, um, which you'll notice the reasons for marriage are not um, to be happy, to um, share the workload, or to share the, the debt of the rent on my apartment. That's not what it says. Marriage was ordained for the mutual help husband and wife, the increase of mankind with a legitimate issue, and for preventing of uncleanness. In other words, we, we believe people get married because they need help, because God has called us to have children, and so that we don't go off and, and um, burn with lust and passion after 
those who we're not married to. So, candidates for marriage, restrictions in reasons for marriage, restrictions in marriage, and prohibitions in marriage. Who, who may and may not be married and things like that. Then we have chapter 26, a, a big section on the church. Again, if we wanted to put this under the category of Christian liberty, we believe Christ is the head of the church. And that was historical. Because even when, remember, when, even when Henry VIII broke away from Rome, he didn't say, we're getting away from the Pope as the head so that Christ can be the head. He said, we're getting away from the Pope as the head so I can be the head. We believe Christ is the head of the church. And so a big section on um, the church. I'm going to go quickly. The communion of the saints. How should we treat each other? Then we have three chapters on the church sacraments. And these are distinctively Baptist perspectives on the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Um, while we do believe they are means of grace, we do not believe in, in some physical um, manifestation of the body of Christ and the bread of the blood or anything like that. But we do believe that they are more than just a symbol, more than just a picture. They are means of grace. So that concludes that section on Christian living. And then the last unit, unit for the world to come. We might consider this the, the eschatology section. And the chapters are divided up. We could say the first one deals with personal eschatology, what's going to happen to individuals and people. And then the last chapter is on cosmic es eschatology, what's going to happen to all things. Judgment's going to come, reality of judgment, the goal of judgment, and preparation. And the paper's supposed to say preparation for judgment day. Any questions? It's going to be long. You realize that. Was, we were talking this morning. Everybody's like, yeah, let's do a study on the confession. It'll be fun. We'll just go through the confession. If we spend a, sec, a, a week on every section, that'll be 160 weeks. It's not possible, you know, for me to spend a week on each section. So we're going to be studying it for a long time. And then when we get done, we'll probably just have to start back over and go through it again. But um, our Baptist forefathers have put a lot of blood, literally blood, sweat, and tears into what we generally take for granted. Being a Baptist does not just mean you baptize three-year-olds instead of eight-day-olds. There's more to it than that. And so, um, some of you got that. So, there's, there's a lot here. A lot of work. Read through it and study it. Now that you've got that outline, read through it and see what you can figure out for yourself. If you can break it down even more than that, let me know. I'm going to have to have sermon outline. So let me know what you come up with. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our, our ancestors. We thank you for the gifts, Lord Jesus, that you have given to your church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherd teachers who were willing to do this work that I doubt many of us would be willing to do. They were willing to do this and you have preserved it so that we can have uh, this, this categorized and systematized doctrinal uh, manual to keep us in line. Lord, I pray that we would not ever exalt a confession above the Word of God, but that we would continue to be faithful in the Scriptures, that we would always be reforming according to the Word of God. Bless our fellowship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.